Welcome to Obiter Dicta, Bloomsbury Professional Ireland's podcast on all things law and tax, hosted by Rachel Sherlock and Gráinne McMahon. Today's guest is Stephen Spearin, BL. He has a civil practice where much of his work is in the area of probate, trusts and estates, property, commercial contracts, debt recovery, chancery, employment and personal injury. He writes the Wills and Probate Update with Brian Spear and SC on BPRO, Bloomsbury Professionals' digital platform for law and tax professionals. Today we are sitting down with Stephen to chat about Wills and Probate. We hope that in this podcast we can break down the technical aspects of Wills and Probate law and simplify them. Stephen, thanks a million for joining us today. We're going to dive right in because this can be quite a technical area and we want to educate practitioners in some areas that are cropping up of late. Firstly, you say it's very important to properly describe gifts in wills and make provision for what might become of the gift if their life circumstances change. And you're going to tell us about a recent case where this was highlighted. Yeah, so I suppose the overall thing would be the failure or error to properly describe a gift in wills or, for example, make provision um, as to what become of that gift if, if someone's circumstances change. So, for example, if a house is sold or if shares are sold or if a car becomes a different brand of car or a piano becomes a different piano. There's two examples that I might look at today. The first is a recent uh, High Court decision called the O'Connell and Murphy, and that's a decision of last year, February 2021. In the High Court, in this case, involved a gift of shares in Kerry Cooperative. So the, the deceased made his will in 1990, and then he died 23 years later without changing his will. And in his will, he left his shares in Kerry Co-op to his nephew. But over time, Kerry Co-op developed, and um, a new entity was born called Kerry Group PLC, which I think many people will be familiar with. And through a matter of decisions by the two companies, Kerry Co-op shares are substituted for Kerry Group. PLC shares uh, and at the deceased date of death he owned both Kerry co-op shares and Kerry group PLC shares so the, the court was asked what is the nephew the person who is getting the Kerry co-op shares what was he also to get the Kerry group PLC shares um, because it, as it happened the Kerry group shares at that stage are worth 1.1 uh, million euro and if they didn't go to the nephew they were going to go to the residual beneficiaries so Arguably, it wasn't the testator's intention to gift Kerry Group PLC shares to his residue. It seemed that he wanted to gift all his Kerry shares to his nephew, but that's not what happened. So in order to try and persuade the court that the nephew is entitled to the entirety of the shares, he sought to introduce evidence which was outside of the will, and that's known as extrinsic evidence. But the difficulty here is that extrinsic evidence is not ordinarily admissible when someone's making an attempt to interpret a will. And this is because a will has to be read between its four corners. It has to be read as a piece of plain English. You can't just decide to suit yourself as a beneficiary to try and say, well, this is what my uncle, this is my grandfather, this is what my mother intended. You have to give effect to simply what it says in English on the page. And up until the Succession Act 1965, extrinsic evidence wasn't admissible. And then it was given statutory footing under Section 90 of the Succession Act. But very briefly, for extrinsic evidence to be admissible, it must show the intention of the testator and to assist in the construction of or assist in explain any contradiction in a will. So it has there's two two requirements. Um, but in this case, the court was being asked to admit extrinsic evidence to show 
what the testator's intention was in relation to shares that he didn't actually own at the time he made his will. So he can't have known what he intended to do with something that he didn't have in, in his possession. So the court was satisfied that where a gift in a will is not expressed in terms which encompass future assets of the type being gifted, it can cannot be said that the testator has an intention in relation to him. So it wasn't possible to even ascertain what the, the intention was. Ultimately, the court said there's no misdescription in the will that would require a court intervention to, to remedy the defect or to try and give effect what the testator was. So in other words, the gift was quite straightforward. So I give my, in simple words, so I give, give my gift of carrying co-op shares to my nephew. And because that gift could be affected very simply by giving whatever shares um, corresponding to Kerry Gubjo's nephew, the gift was completed. So what happened there was the Kerry group shares went to the residual beneficiaries, which was quite a windfall for people who probably weren't expecting it. So I suppose it's a very stark reminder to legal practitioners and to us all that if you make a will, it's important to update it because you know life changes, your personal items change over time. So it's important to keep an updated will so it actually reflects the intentions of the testator. So really, if, if you want to give something to a loved one, it's important that all careful steps are taken to, to ensure that that can happen. And what this case also demonstrates is that there is external factors that can materially affect the gift in your will. So it's, it's outside of your control. This is what happened in this case. The shares are substituted with no direction from the testator. It just happened as a course of business. And that ultimately did the nephew... Even though he benefited very much in terms of the Kerry Cope shares, he didn't get the entirety of the shareholdings that the deceased owned at the time. So, for example, had the deceased simply said, I give all my Kerry shares to my nephew, well, then I think Kerry Group, PLC, and Kerry Cooperative shares would have fallen under the umbrella of Kerry shares and, and the, the gift would have um, taken effect in that respect. So, it's just a good reminder that it's really important to, to carefully describe what you want to give somebody and, and think of something that might happen in the future. So, for example, a house, and this leads me to my second example, which is a case I was involved in, where person A leaves uh, their house to person B, then person B innocently sells person A's house under an enduring power of attorney for person A's benefits, for example, to pay for um, nursing care. And then person A dies and they look at the will and all of a sudden there's no house to go to person, person B. And like in the previous case, the proceeds of sale, uh, the net proceeds of sale, or the monies that were left over from the sale of the house, they went to the residuary beneficiaries. And clearly that wasn't the testator's attention. So because there was no house left, it's known as it, it, it became a deemed, so subject to the doctrine of redemption. And of course, persons involved thought this was very unfair or very old-fashioned. And of course, that might be the case, but the courts in England and Wales and, and recently enough in Australia looked at this doctrine of redemption where property is sold for the benefit of somebody uh, but that's the position there still here it was looked at in a 2007 bill called the mental capacity and guardianship bill and it provided that where land owned by a deceased person who's the subject of a guardianship order sold the persons who would otherwise have been entitled in returns of valid testamentary disposition in the will on the death of the original owner to a share in the proceeds shall be deemed to have the same portion interest in any surplus monies for the proceeds of sale which remain. So what happens, had this bill been passed, if property was sold, the proceeds of sale would go to the person who was intended to take the property. But the Assisted Decision-Making Capacity Act 2015 
didn't include any of this. So while it was considered previously, it wasn't followed through. And that's the situation that we're at the moment. So that's another example of where external factors, for example, can basically frustrate the intentions of a test stage when the gift cannot be completed. But for example, in both instances, the unintended consequences could have been avoided had the will been drafted with future changes in mind. So for example, in terms of the shares, you could say, I could I leave my shares in Carrier Co-op or the shares that uh, were previously known as Carrier Co-op shares to my nephew. Or in terms of the house, I say, I leave my house or the, pro- or the net proceeds of sale that are identifiable, my son or daughter or whatever. So, you know, you can t- everyone's at pains to say, describe the gift with certainty. It's also important to consider that wills are made and then somebody doesn't die until maybe 20 or 30 years later. And of course, gifts and possessions change over time. So it's important to consider potential changes, I suppose, is, is what I'm trying to say, because otherwise we have the doctrine of redemption to, to consider. And Stephen, what will a court do when trying to ascertain the intention of a testator, like going back to those two examples? Because they, they may seem a little bit harsh, but the, the court was following the rules. Yeah, so, so there's a number of steps a court will take to try and ascertain what the intention was. So first of all, they read the will as a, pe- a piece of plain English and try and decide what it says. Another thing, which is one of many aspects which the court looks at, is, is what was known as the armchair principle. So the court will try and put themselves in the testator's armchair and try and decide what he was thinking at a particular time when he made his will and try and understand the circumstances surrounding the will and why particular gifts were made Um but that's just, that's just one one element that a court will look at. So I wouldn't say that's the only thing, but they will try to ascertain what the, intent, the intention of the testator is. Because the last thing they want to do is, if somebody's taken the careful step to make a will, they don't want somebody to have uh, died in testator, for example, the gift to fail. So they'll be at pains to try and give effect to a gift of a, uh, in a will. But sometimes the outcome will prefer uh, one party over another and obviously the, the unsuccessful party will be very disappointed. And it may be the case that it wasn't the testator's intention, but the court can't try and rewrite a person's will and they'll be very careful to remind people that. Um, so even though the outcome may not be to the satisfaction of one person, they can't, the court can't try and remedy. It's, it's hugely complicated area. Wills have been interpreted by the courts over years and you know for the next hundreds of years there'll still be difficulties with um gifts and wills and how they're described and and how gifts change over time it's just an unfortunate reality of or consequence if somebody takes the the careful step to make a will that sometimes it doesn't it doesn't always go well um and as i said sometimes gifts are redeemed and uh, which means that the gift fails and so, Stephen, just to go back to you mentioned the doctrine of redemption. Could you give us an explanation of that, just as a reminder? Yeah. So, so very simply, if the, if a testator leaves a specific item of property, uh, for example, a house or, or some personal items, to a beneficiary, and at the time of their death, the specific item of property is no longer part of their estate, then the gift is said to be redeemed. Uh, so, the beneficiary unfortunately receive nothing. So. A, a, a gift is redeemed uh, and therefore fails if the subject matter of the gift is disposed of prior to death. So, for example, in, in the case I mentioned uh, where the house was sold um, for the benefit of the owner to pay for their nursing care, that gift was redeemed 
and even though there was proceeds of sale from the uh, that were identifiable, they didn't go to the beneficiary. So, I mean, that's an unfortunate consequence of somebody trying to do what they thought was best at the time. So in both of those cases, Stephen, you say that the unintended consequences could have been avoided if the will had been drafted with future changes or at least the potential for change in mind. So for practitioners who may come across such examples, may you give us an example of how we may draft the will to deal with those changes so that we're covered? Yeah, so in terms of the example of the gift of a house, um, the house is sold uh, to, to benefit its owner and to provide for nursing care, and the house is sold under an enduring power of attorney, which is a very careful and prudent decision to take. Um, but the unintended consequences of that could have been avoided if the will had it said, I leave my house to my daughter, uh, or in the event that the house is sold, the proceeds of the net proceeds of sale to my daughter. Um, I think that's particularly important um, nowadays because more and more people are executing enduring power returns, and I think properties will be sold to pay for care needs. So I think it's important to maybe uh, not verbatim what I've just said, but to consider what uh, what way it should be drafted to include the proceeds of sale so that the person who takes the decision to sell the house may get something in in, in the long run um, because it certainly probably wasn't a person's intention if they give the house to them that the proceeds would go to a further relative down the line. In terms of the shares, as I said, in terms of the carry shares, I mean, for example, as if the testator had a gifted my carry shares to, to his nephew, the carry shares would have covered both, arguably covered both carry cooperative and, and carry group PLC. But for example, in terms of the carry cooperative shares, if you said, I give my carry cooperative shares or the shares that were previously known as carry cooperative shares to my nephew, then I think the gift might have taken effect and the carry group PLC shares which were previously carry co-op shares, would have then gone to the nephew. So I think it's important with changing circumstances, particularly with stocks and shares, particularly with assets like property, uh, to consider that these assets may change over time. But is there an exemption to the doctrine of redemption? And can you explain where that would come into play? So there are some exceptions to the doctrine of, of redemption. Um, Going back to, for example, the enduring power of attorney, a similar type of case might arise where somebody is a ward of court in Ireland and um, a decision is taken by the wards committee to sell their property for their benefit. In this case, which is different to enduring power of attorney, if, if the property is sold, the um, net proceeds, which can be identified, will go to the person who's intended to take that property. And that's actually under a very, very old law. It's under the under Section 67 of the Lunacy Regulation Ireland Act 1871. So many people may not look at it, but that's the effect. So, for example, in the example I gave earlier, had the property been sold for the person under a... Uh, when there were a ward of court rather than whether it was done under a general attorney, then the proceeds of sale could have went to that person. So I suppose there we have a a conflict between persons who are uh, under kind of a type of guardianship, one under an enduring power of attorney and one under a ward of court. And the person who 
the world of court seems to operate better for in terms of wills and um, property that's disposed during the wardship. So it would be nice, for example, if the Oireachtas gave consideration to getting rid of, for example, the Lunacy Regulation Act, which is a terrible name, and updating it to, and, and taking into consideration the fact that the assistance decision-making capacity act 2015 is silent on this issue because as i said earlier i think property will be sold for people's benefits in the future to pay for care homes etc and unfortunately the persons who are to take a benefit of property will will lose out as the law stands but definitely i think that's something that's going to come up more and more and Stephen, can you also chat to us about some other common scenarios where difficulties arise yeah, I think one of the most common scenarios in terms of mistakes and misdescriptions in wills uh, is in terms of farms and agricultural land. There's a huge amount of agricultural land in Ireland, as we know, and a lot of the case law will um, demonstrate that mistakes and misdescriptions in wills uh, relate to descriptions of farmland. So, for example, one farm might be comprised in one folio, Within that folio, you might have four parcels of land, each land having a specific ten land name. Uh, but as we know, most farmers will call their farm by one particular name and won't make specific reference to the to the ten land name. So what has happened is a farmer will gift his farm to a son or a nephew or a daughter uh, using one name, but in fact the folio suggests that there's actually four particular names. And for example, residuary beneficiaries make may want to challenge this gift and say, well, no, he only intended to give one parcel of land to his nephew and the other parcel of the land should, should go to, should form part of his residue. And we've seen those, we've seen cases like that in the last few years in the courts as well. So again, particularly in terms of agricultural land, I think it's really, really important if, if a solicitor is making a will where it's a gift of a farm or a gift of property, that they make the gift with reference to a map with specific pieces of land marked in red, uh, perhaps lettered to identify who is to get which piece of land or whether the person is to take the entirety of the farm. Uh, because too often we see family arguments in relation to specific pieces of land. There's been films, plays, books, the whole lot written about them. So, and it still happens. We're in 21st century and, and people would have thought that this is a problem of the past, but it continues to happen every day here. It also might be prudent to do land searches and Say, for example, if a neighbour, you've given a parcel of land to a neighbour for right away or something like that, um, that any time you divide up the land that you update the will accordingly, because I've come across scenarios where this hasn't been done. And also in relation to drafting orders in, in family law events where you're trying to figure out the farm and it's really important that in the order, the final order, that the, the folios are represented. Would you agree with that? Absolutely, and, and not just that the folios are, are reflected. Folios with reference to maps and particular pieces of land within those maps. It, like, there's no difficulty in being over, overly careful in, 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 in terms of describing pieces of land. And the easiest way to see a piece of land is with reference to a map and to divide it out in a red line or a blue line or a green line and mark it A, B, C or D. I mean, it, 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 that simple task could avoid months, years of litigation and the costs that are associated with it. So I think particularly with farmland, people should definitely be more careful. And 
not just take instructions from the farmer, ask questions, ask him, is this how the land is known? Do you have the folio? Can you show me the folio? What are the various pieces of land known as? Is this a colloquial name you're giving it? Uh, what's the actual name? And really be thorough in term in, 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 in attempting to ascertain the very specifics of how the land is, is named and how it's described and how, it, what, how the person intends to gift it. You're so right. Um, can we discuss another topic now? And the matter of alterations came up in another case. And I know you wrote about this on BPRO, but you might bring us through it, Stephen. Yeah, this was, uh, again, an unfortunate consequence of somebody who took um, steps to make their own will. So uh, a kind of a template will that you can buy in well-known stationery shops in Ireland. And people have always tried to do these themselves and, and do them with the best intentions in mind. But the difficulty is that it's a, it's a formal document and there's, there's too much room for error, even if you follow the instructions on the back of the of the document and so this was a a will where it was executed and then after it was executed the testator she decided to make a number of alterations to her will and um, so for example she crossed out the name of the executor in pen and the, and the person's name couldn't be identified and then she crossed out a gift of money in its entirety and then she so they were they were called um, the third change was the addition of uh, just one simple word may the difficulty was that the court was asked, is the will valid given that there were changes made after the will was executed? So if a change is made, it has to be uh, signed or executed in the same way as if the entire will was made. So it needs to be initialed or, and, and signed. So if an alteration is made after a draft will has been printed and errors or omissions are discovered before execution, it's important that each alteration is duly executed by the testator. So you can make alterations after it's, for example, your will has been printed, but before it's been executed. But if, if an alteration has been made after your will is executed, then any of the changes made are invalid. So in this case, because changes were made to the will after it's executed, the court was asked, well, is the, is the entire will invalid? So it actually went to the Court of Appeal um, because the effect would be that if the will is invalid, there's a huge range of people that would benefit on the, on the testacy. Um, but ultimately, the Court of Appeal said, well, in terms of the executor's name, who was uh, scribbled out, that should be just treated as a blank, and the result would be that the person's entitled to extract the grant would be governed by Order 79 of the Rules of the Superior Court, so the, the usual order of priority. The second obliteration, so that was the, the scribbling out of a gift of money, that should be treated as a blank as well. So that had no effect in terms of the overall will. And then the addition of the word say uh, should be ignored as if, the, as if the word had not been added. So in other words, the court was satisfied that the alterations made after execution were not material to the overall validity of the will, and they were happy to have the will treated as valid, which was a good outcome in the end. But I suppose the importance of this case is that in terms of legal petitioners or, or just anybody really is that if you're making a will, it's really important that you get legal advice or if you want to take the steps to make your own will, do your research and make sure that everything that's done is correct. And um, again, this is just an example of somebody who's trying to be careful and try to keep their will up to date, for example, 
but it would have been easier just to execute a new will with the changes in mind or execute what's called the codicil, which is a, a, an amendment to a will, which is kind of a supplementary document to a will. But I suppose nowadays it's so easy to simply redraft or retype out a new will. I think codicils are a thing of the past. It's just as easy to make a new will. So again, it, it suggests that you should always keep your will up to date to reflect, again, changes in, in life and changes in relationships and changes in, in property that you own. And just to elaborate on that a bit further, do you have any kind of top tips in relation to making an alteration to a will? Rachel, I would simply say make a new will. Top tip. <laughs> That's, That's fair it. enough. But just to go back in terms of what we've talked about already, in terms of gifts and being specific, there's a an old rule called the three certainties uh, in terms of gifts and, and trusts. And that means there's, there should be certainty of intention, there should be certainty of subject and certainty of object. And every lawyer in the land should know this and bear this in mind when they're making wills. But certainly of intention means using words that are imperative. So I give, I devise, I uh, bequest, that kind of gives some kind of direction or order. Sometimes people use words like I wish or it's my desire, but these wishy-washy words are called precatory words and they are absolutely no use. So, for example, if somebody says, I wish Rachel to have my car, well, poor Rachel's not going to get the car because wish isn't, has no kind of legal or binding effect. But then in terms of uh, certainty of subject, as I said, this is the, what, what, what is the actual gift? So as I said, in terms of farm, if the farm is described very ambiguously, um, where it could actually relate to various pieces of land, then there, there hasn't been sufficient certainty. So if you're giving a, a gift, be careful to describe the gifts as carefully as you can. And looking back to what we said earlier, bearing in mind, that the gift may change over time, so to bear in mind, you know, future future changes, and then the third certainty, certainty of object. Well, this is the certainty of the person who's to give the gift. So if you say, I give my piano to to John, who's John? Is it John, my uncle, John, my nephew, John, my son? So be very careful to to appropriately describe the beneficiary. In terms of court cases, this has happened where somebody has attempted to make a gift to charity, and sometimes various charities, very similar names. And that's, this has caused confusion. So if you're giving a gift to charity, look up what their registered name is and where their registered address is and, and use that in the gift. So in terms of top tips, in terms of wills, just be very specific, as specific as you can, bearing in mind that the nature of the gift might change over time, as we looked at earlier in terms of the shares, or, for example, the, a house. That's fantastic. Thanks so much. I think that's really helpful. And then just to close out, we have our usual quick fire round. So to start us off, uh, what are the top three things you would take to a desert island? Oh, top three things. Um, I would bring my guitar to keep me entertained. I would probably bring the book Dubliners by James Joyce, because it's a book of short stories that I think you can reread over time. And I would bring a water filtration system so I could drink water to stay alive. I mean, I think that's a good mix of, of practical and entertainment. You mentioned Dubliners. Uh, can I ask if there's a current book that you're reading? Well, this is might be surprised to discover that I don't actually read very much. I think people might just believe barristers just read from morning to night. But because I read, it's probably my job. I tend not to read too much, but I read on holiday at Christmas time or if I go away. The last book I read was a book my dad thought I would like called... Uh, 
Devil's Advocate by Steve Kavanagh, who I think is from Northern Ireland. Um, crime uh, thriller type thing that started very well, but I was disappointed with the ending. I read it very quickly and uh, similar to watching legal dramas on TV as a lawyer, you're just pinpointing all the inaccuracies and the difficult, you know, stuff that just doesn't happen. So, so that was, I enjoyed it. It was, it was a holiday read and, um, I also tend, I'm, because I don't read very much, I tend to take a very long time to read books. I'm, I have something on my Kindle called A History of Ireland in 250 Episodes, uh, which goes back to how Ireland started out until modern day. So I think I'm at the stage where they're going through the various tribes and clans that are around the country and where how the, the Vikings arrived and developed them. So that's actually very interesting. It certainly helps you get to sleep at night. So that's... that's um, that's why it's probably taking so long to fall asleep every time I'm reading this book. <laughs> Sounds great. Um, so when was the last time you had a good laugh? I think it was any time I have a family dinner with my immediate family. It's always a good laugh. And I was fortunate enough to have that over the last few weeks. So that was, that was good. And I look forward to having a good laugh with um, friends over a drink in the future, hopefully. Not too far away, hopefully, from now. Uh, wonderful. Uh, I think we're all looking forward to getting back to that. And finally here, if you could choose another career, what would it be? I think I, in school I did want to be an architect and my favourite subject was technical graphics or what was known as mechanical drawing. I don't know what it's called now. But I used to always draw houses on my copybooks and um, it just never happened. And I think that if I see another career, I'd probably be an architect maybe, which is completely different to being a barrister. But Sounds great. And just before we leave off, I think you wanted to give a recommendation of something to watch on TV at the moment. Yes, there is a new series on RT Player called The Talk. Um, It's three episodes. Uh, It's on RT Player at the moment and it goes out on TV week commencing the 24th of January 2022. And if you miss it on TV, it will be on RT Player for a while. But it's, it's they look at um, topics like uh, domestic violence, uh, racism, and body positivity. Sounds fantastic. And I think that's it for this episode. Great. That's it for another episode of Obiter Dicta. Thanks to Stephen Spear and BL for joining us. We look forward to bringing you another episode very soon.